Diverse voices. Unique sound. Not the same old thing. Different, different. This is NOCO FM. God and Love on Route 80. This is the book by Stephen G. Post, Ph.D. He's the best-selling author of Why Good Things Happen to Good People, How to Live a Longer, Happier, Healthier Life by the Simple Act of Giving. He's been quoted in more than 4,000 international newspapers and magazines, including the New York Times, Parade Magazine, O Magazine, and Psychology Today. He's been interviewed on several hundred radio and TV programs, including The Daily Show. I'm so excited to have Stephen Post join me today as we talk about his new book, God and Love on Route 80, The Hidden Mystery of Human Connectedness. Welcome to The Spark. I'm your host, Stephanie James. Let's talk about this wonderful book, God and Love on Route 80, and this premonition of your mother's where you you had a near-death experience yeah of a sort it could have been right could have been yeah (laughs) i i was up at reed college uh in portland oregon and it doesn't uh it doesn't snow up there much but it rains a lot and sometimes it's cold in the evenings it's january it was late january and it was kind of slushy and i was sitting in the in the coffee house with a bunch of other students and this guy bounded in through the door, and he looked a little wild-eyed. He had a black uh, motorcycle jacket on. Uh, his hair was pretty, pretty flashy. And he said, "I'm, I'm Andy, and I've got a brand new Harley Davidson Shovelhauser. Who'd like to go for a bike ride? It's the fastest motorcycle on earth, and it was at the time." So I, somewhat foolishly, said, "I'll go." And so I went out into the parking lot, and. I jumped on the back of this huge motorcycle and he took off and he hit 140 miles an hour, roughly in about a minute and a half, two minutes. He went through every stoplight, every red light, and I was really scared. So then he does this incredible maneuver and we're on the Pacific Coast Highway headed south toward California um, and he hit 180. And it's, you know, we were slipping and sliding around. Um, and I actually, I was screaming. I said, please let me off. Please let me off. I, I, I let me off. And he, yeah. and he, and he, he didn't care. He was having the time of his life and he was, he was shouting into the rain as it was pelting down on our faces and, and oh my God. So, so at about a, we went about an hour and then he did this amazing, um, kind of evil Knievel style U-turn over the midway and he drove back same speed and he dropped me off exactly where he picked me up. And I just managed to get off the bike. I was shaking. I, 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 I was off balance and I staggered across um, a bridge over the ravine that went to Ackerman dormitory. That's the dorm I lived in that, that year. And uh, mind you now, so it's it's about 11 Pacific Coast time. It's about 2 East Coast time. Um, so I now there's a telephone booth in the lobby in, 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 in the foyer of the of the dorm. And uh, there's a telephone on the wall, actually. And, and I never picked it up. And I but I given the number to my mom some months ago. And I just stepped across the threshold. And as soon as I did that, 
the phone started ringing. And ordinarily, I would just walk by it because I had nothing. No one could get a hold of me back in the day, you know. I mean, I was studying with Robert Bly and all kinds of people who was he was the poet in residence, and I was in my own my own universe. But somehow, I felt pushed toward toward the phone, and I can't explain it, but it was like an actual push type energy. And so I I went over and I picked it up, and I said hello, and it was my mom. And she said, Stevie, you're alive. Thank God. She said, I woke up from sleep and I had this incredible feeling. I was sweating. I was frightened. I thought you had died. And I kind of was shocked by it. I said, Mom, I'm actually okay, but I thought I was dying too. <laughs> and, and, and then we had this conversation about, about what had just happened to me. And... My mom was, you know, a little bit on the mystical side, kind of Irish mystical, and uh, and we 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 sort of reflected on this a little bit together, and and it's amazing that, you know, she was all those miles away, uh, three thousand miles away, and despite you know the Rocky Mountains and all of those things where you are, you know, somehow or another, she had connected with me, and and was evidence. Uh, as some other events were too at that time in my life of there being this idea, well, you know, Larry Dossie calls it the one mind, that there is this aspect of our mind that goes beyond um, locality and uh, time and place that's something more profound than just derived from brain tissues and cells and and so forth, but that uh, is completely mysterious and and in which we all participate because if we don't have that then it's very difficult to explain how my mom 3000 miles away knew what was going on exactly and you know so there's this thing of serendipity and synchronicities and like you said this it it's like this energy that actually sometimes pushes us or directs us towards certain things or certain behaviors or go to this place or like you know answer the phone yeah, I mean, just it's not in the in the book, but you know, a couple of years ago, I was sitting here in my office in the medical school, and a lot of the med students who are kind of, you know, they may be struggling a little bit with meaning and purpose. They might show up at my office. It just happens to be that's the dynamic around here. And so there's this wonderful young gal uh, from Queens, um, uh, and she was a Korean American. And she was really struggling because she came up very poor and, and, and the family had no money at all. And she wasn't feeling like she was fitting into the culture of her peers. So um, she she came in and she was also kind of a uh, raised in a, in a street evangelical intense Korean church. And so there were these cultural issues. And um, she said she really wanted to talk to me. And I said, well, look, I've got a long schedule. So why don't you email me? And we'll get together next week. And just as that happened, I was sitting in this chair and I felt this incredible energy over my right shoulder. So much so that I actually looked and there was nothing there, of course, absolutely nothing there. But I felt it. It was so warm and even even hot in a way. And it and I didn't hear a voice, but my sense was, wait a minute, you know, pay attention to this young lady. And I did. So I canceled all my meetings. And I spent the next three hours with her and she did take a year off and I would visit her 
uh, you know, in Queens uh, every month or so. She did some writing under my mentorship, uh, and she, and and she eventually kind of acculturated to medical school. And now she's a very successful doctor in preventive medicine. But that's an example of how I felt almost invaded, as a metaphor. You know, I felt yeah. almost invaded, and and I, and I wasn't trying to resist it. And I guess it was irresistible, but it wasn't invited, you know. So, so I felt invaded by this energy of of you know I call it pure unlimited love, and that's what kept me in the room, and and established that relationship with with her. And it was very profound, and I continued it because even as the years would pass by, um, you know, she had a struggle. She would she would call. I always made time to visit and talk because I felt that it wasn't just coming from me, you know, that I should devote, you know, some energy to this 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 point of light in the universe, you know. But somehow or another. Uh, it was my it was my heavenly mission, if you will. But that was just because I, I and I still remember it to this day because it was so palpable, but it was not visible. Well, and that's just it. Like when you talk about this energy and this for me, I mean, it, it's that divine. Some people call it a calling or an intuition. It's It's what comes through. And sometimes it comes to us in the form of dreams. Mm hmm. And, and that's what you begin the book with, with this reoccurring dream about the Blue Angel. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So when I was a, I was a young kid, I was only 12, actually. I went up to Concord, New Hampshire, to a very stodgy Episcopal boarding school known as St. Paul's School in Concord, Concord, New Hampshire. And I had all, you know always been kind of interested in spiritual readings even when i was 13 14 years old and i i, I even we had to major at st paul's i majored in sacred studies and i was interested in world religions and things uh so um when i was 15 and we had chapel by the way it was required every morning eight o'clock had to be a chapel so early in the morning like you know i would i was an early riser maybe 5 30 6 o'clock I would. I was just waking up, and I wasn't sure. I was kind of betwixt in between. I wasn't like fully awake or fully asleep. And over a little more than a year, I had uh, a recurring dream, and it recurred six times. And it was very explicit uh, and, and identical on each occasion. So it's pretty simple. There was this uh, very, very thick silvery mist, and it was leading me on a road to the west. And then... I saw the rough outline of a youth with stringy blonde hair kind of leaning over as a, a, a ledge as if ready to jump. And then the mist disappeared, and I saw the face of a blue angel. Now, I didn't believe in angels, by the way, but there was the face of a blue angel. I mean, talk about invasion, right? <laughs> so, so in a very soft um, and a feminine voice, the angel said, if you save him, you too shall live. And then the angel disappeared and the dream was over. And I would, uh, I would go early to chapel on those mornings and I had a favorite 
few that I would sit and meditate about this because I mean I, I I was we were reading Jung you know and I and I and, and I mean it was a pretty sophisticated school and I and I wasn't sure what to make of this maybe it was just my mind conjuring up something from nothing because I was on a desperate detour for something meaningful and you know we're meeting making creatures yes know, yes and, and all that stuff and so the subjectivity was a part of it but i also felt because especially as it recurred you know as it continued to recur i thought wait a minute this is like this um uh i believed in the oversoul because i read a lot of emerson you know the oversoul just kind of breaking into my mundane consciousness and somehow giving me a hint or a wink or a whisper you know that there's a destiny involved here. And I had no idea what else to say, but my sacred studies teacher, who was great, he, Rod Wells, uh, he, he was so wonderful. And his friend, his wife, Julie, actually, now Julie Norman, wrote a, wrote a blurb for the book. <laughs> and so, and I still see her and we talk a lot. She's like 75 years old and she lives in Vineyard Haven. And uh, she talks about the days of the dream, you know? So I, I, I Rod took a real interest in, adolescent spirituality because you know um stephanie not everybody does sometimes people think it's just silliness and put it on the shelf and but um he really took an interest in me and one afternoon we drove from concord down to new haven connecticut uh to yale divinity school because he was a yale div grad and there was a class there on adolescent spirituality that was taught by a famous Jungian psychologist of religion named James Diddies, right? And so I was the featured guest in this class. There were like 15 masters of divinity school students who were going to go into probably the Episcopal priesthood. And uh, they asked me about the dream and I told them about the dream. And then they had all these wonderful questions. I, I really loved it. And I mean, they, they found out that I was a Nazarite, which is to say that I didn't drink or anything like that. And I still don't. I'm a teetotaler because I somehow believed in, in the purity of the mind. And, and they found out that, that in response to the dream, I'd actually applied to read college because nobody, no Paulies, quote unquote, you know, they all went to like East Coast established places. But here I was ap- applied to this college in Re in, in Oregon. And they were like, oh, my goodness, no one ever does that. So, you you know, but and, and it was really great. And I told them, you know, I, I we read Emerson up in Concord and all my friends, they love it as a literary piece. But I think I'm the only one who really believes it. You know, so I was very Emersonian. And that was the dream. And, 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 you know, then I, when I hit 17, you know, that's the next part of the story. And I, and I go home and Rod had gotten me a job in the Bronx uh, teaching tutoring kids. And I really wanted to do that because I tutored in New Hampshire with the French. There were a lot of very poor French Canadian families around the woods in New Hampshire. And there were these, these schools where we were allowed to tutor. And I loved doing that. But my parents, I was headed for Swarthmore. My parents, uh, after two days of arguing, you know, they, they would not allow me to to do this because they said it's too dangerous to be in the Bronx and your dad has checked it out and all that. And I didn't even believe that. But ultimately, uh, you know, they said, look, we're not even sure we're going to support you for college if you insist on this. And so I said, "Okay, I will relent. Then I said, Dad, where am I going to work? And my dad was the president of a furniture store, W&J Sloan on Fifth Avenue, which was across from Scribner's Books. And, you know, Charlie was, by the way, lived in my dorm. And so, I mean, this is the kind of place St. Paul's was. And so my dad knew all of the manufacturers of like lamps, furniture, couches across, across all of New York. So he said, I got it. You can work in Bill De Bono's lampshade factory. I mean, 
Oh my God. So <laughs> I, I, so, so Bill, Bill DeBono was a guy who had a lampshade factory in Patchogue on the South shore of Long Island. So I drove my dad's secondhand gray Mercedes 190, which has seen a lot better days. And I only think he bought it because he wanted to look spiffy when we went up to St. Paul's, you know, <laughs> kind of spiffy. <laughs> so, so I actually, for two weeks, I worked in Bill DeBono's lampshade factory and he had a big cigar and he would supervise us. And there were like 20 people on a line. And my job was to cut cardboard. And after a couple of weeks of this, you know, I was finished. So with my copy of Siddhartha in my, in my pocket and my classical guitar and for about 50 bucks, I drove out to West Hampton beach, which is out in the Hamptons. And I had a couple of friends, Livy Sutro and some others. And about uh, 11 at night, I said, you know, I'm not going to take this anymore. So I, got, I said, I'm going to follow my dream. So the thing is, there was the, pull, the the dream was always a lure. It was always an intuitive lure. But there was also this hard push because things were not easy at home. And I was really tired of sweating it out in that unair conditioned lampshade factory. And so I just drove that Mercedes west on the Sunrise Highway and I drove it through the Midtown Tunnel and I drove up through Manhattan and I got to the George Washington Bridge. I'd never driven over that bridge before, but I did then. And um, there were two signs. One said 95 South. The other said Route 80 West. And of course, you know, being a dreamer, I went 80 West. And I felt pretty good, but about five in the morning, I was in the middle of Pennsylvania near Lewisburg near the Lewisburg exit. By the way, my daughter went to Bucknell, so whenever I had to drop her off at Bucknell, which is in Lewisburg, I always remember my own shenanigans as a kid. <laughs> so to help put things in perspective. I could look, oh, that's where I left the car. So what happened was I was going to turn around because I thought I can get home and my reputation will be untarnished and I'll be a normal human being. But just as I was th about to do that, uh, back in those days, cars had uh, generators. They don't have many more, but if the generator broke, all the power was finished instantaneously, and the car with every the dead the lights were dead, the battery every the, the engine was dead. There was nothing you could do. So I managed to uh, when that happened get over on the right shoulder, and I looked. It was just sort of twilight, and there was nothing but miles and miles and miles of wheat fields because that's what you know Pennsylvania is in the middle of it anyway, and um, there were no phone booths, nothing. So. I did the only thing that a young guy could do. I took a piece of paper out of the glove compartment and in pencil, I wrote to the Pennsylvania state police, please return this car to Henry AV post 44 Davison lane East West Islip, New York from a five, one, six, 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 nine, five, six, five, five from his son who no longer works in the lampshade factory. <laughs> It was terrible. But I thought, you know, I, I thought that somehow the car stopping like that was a sign to me that I should continue because I was thinking about turning around, but the car stopped. So I thought I, I have to go west. So I have my guitar, my, you know, uh, my, my Siddhartha, and I put my thumb out and this big, huge white truck came by and a guy flung the door open immediately. And he said, where are you going? And I said, I'm going west. And he said, I can get you to Chicago. His name was Gary. There's a lot, lot about this. But eventually what happens is, I called my mother, by the way. I spent a couple of days in Grant Park in Chicago playing Villalobos and earning some money off the benches. 
but I, I caught on with a with a group of hippies. And uh, as we drove west on 80, 80 goes through Nebraska. And um, when we got just in, just before Lincoln, one of the gals in this troop said to me, you really ought to call your mom. <laughs> and is this, so I, this is about five days into the trip, you know. And, and I, I said, okay. So I went to a phone booth and I called my mom collect. And she said, oh, my God. You're alive. We can call off the Pinkertons. And I said, somewhat mischievously, I said, Mom, why did you call the Pinkertons? Didn't you get my note? <laughs> and she said, we got it. We got the car back to us in the shop, and we should have let you tutor in the Bronx. Now where are you going? I said, Mom. I said, I said well, I'm heading west. I'm following this dream. And um and my mom said, well, where are you going to go? And I said, I don't know, but you have cousin George's address. So I had this wonderful cousin who was older than me, George Lamont. And um, he'd gone to Chapel Hill. He'd been, he did two tours of duty in Vietnam and he was living in the mission district. And he was part of that sort of Vietnam vet subculture. So I showed up at four Chenery street and my cousin George made a pallet for me on the floor in the in the living room it was just a one bedroom apartment and um i spent the summer there i joined the nietzsche and shosho buddhists so i was chanting nam yoho renge kyo with all these people it was very like beyond time and place and very mystical and i loved it and there was an old japanese man named gus who'd actually been interned uh, in hawaii during the second world war and he took a a, a liking to me and he would follow me as I went to all these Hispanic restaurants and played Granados and Tarega and things like that and sort of beefed up my wallet. And I was not going to go to college. I just, I don't need college, at least not now in my life, but uh, I drew a really, really bad draft lottery number. And I called the people at Reed and I said, look, I know I turned you down some months ago, but um, you need to open up a place for me. And they did. And so early September, I'm on the Chenery and Market in front of the temple, and there's Gus and George and four or five other people, and they gave me something, which you a lot of people don't know about this, but you can Google it. It's called a Gohon Zone. It can be Chinese too, but it's a Japanese Buddhist scroll, and it's about you know four or five feet long, and it's a it gives you great fortune. And, and it's got some wonderful symbols about universal mind and about interconnectedness and about kindness. And uh, Gus explained this to me. And, and so I, you know, scrolled it all back up, put it in my backpack. And then I, I said goodbye to everybody. It was a tough scene because I loved being there. And I took the Market Street bus and I, I you know, got off. It's a couple of blocks from Golden Gate Park. And I walked to the park and I walked across the park, which is a long walk, like 20 minutes. And I got to the base of the Golden Gate Bridge. So now it's like, eight in the morning and it's it's so misty and foggy but kind of effervescent too and i uh couldn't see more than about two feet in front of maybe three feet in front of my eyes and i walked on the left side on the there's a pedestrian walkway and um there's a railing that was at that time only about waist high now it's actually about head high and there's all kinds of nets you know because they want to keep people from jumping off but at that time it was you know it was a lot more risky i guess you could say but anyway i'm walking across and i get to the middle of that big span and i hear this ruffling noise to my left and i squinted and i looked and there i saw a face that looked like the face i saw in my dream 
very much like it. And the stringy blonde hair. And there was a guy who was leaning out off a ledge on the other side of the railing. And he was about to jump. And I just completely froze. And he caught me out of the corner of his eye. And it's like I had invaded his sacred moment, you know. And and I said to him, I, I truly hope that you're not planning to jump. And he just railed at me. I mean, he, he started screaming and he was quoting, you know, from Macbeth, life is empty, nothingness. And I just, I listened to him and I said, you know, I kind of believe that too. We're all struggling for meaning. I could be on the ledge. You could be here. You know, it's a, it's hard to find things that are meaningful. And we, we struck up a conversation and I said, it's by the way, when you're, when you're quoting those words out on a ledge, on a bridge, it's a lot deeper than when we used to do it at Memorial Hall at St. Paul's in Concord. So, so I, I told him, I said, look, I don't want you to jump only because I'm, I think that maybe I was kind of led here to encounter you at this moment. And he was just, you know, he was just indignant that he said, you're crazy. And I, and I actually explained to him at some length, you know, what had happened. I explained the dream. I explained the factory, I explained leaving the car in Pennsylvania, I explained everything to him. And I said, I think I was brought here to, to encounter you. And so he was still pretty indignant, but I said, look, I have something that can turn your life around. <laughs> so I pulled my cajon zone out of my backpack, right? And I said, I'm going to give this to you. By the way, if I give this to you, it's bad luck for me. That's what they told me. Great luck for you. So I said, if you take this, your life is going to turn around. And he was still incredulous. But I said, look, if you make, I want you to come across the, the, you know, the railing and stand here with me and I will explain this to you. So believe it or not, his name was Harry. He came across and we talked about this and I, I explained the symbols and, and I said, I want you to make me a promise. If I give this to you, you have to promise me something. You have to go to my cousin George's. So I wrote a note to cousin George, dear George, this is Harry. Please let him sleep on the same spot where I was sleeping. Uh, he needs a shower. Take him down to meet Gus, take him down to the temple and just take care of him. And, 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 and so I said, okay, here's the Cajon zone and, and, you know, walk across the park, get the Marcus street bus, get off of Chenery street, for Chenery street. And that's the last I saw of Harry, but we parted, you know, amicably and and I went north because I was going toward uh, Oregon but just as uh, we parted uh, all the mist disappeared and suddenly there was this really like lucid light blue and I was so reminded of the angel you know and and as I was walking uh, you know down the span I was just thinking you know how amazing it is that at least from my own perspective okay that I'd had a dream two years earlier in Concord, New Hampshire, and 3,000 miles away. And here, here I was having this encounter that was just almost perfectly dreamlike. And so we must really be cherished by this loving energy in the universe. And all I, I thought I was thinking about all the, all the complexity of setting this up, you know? So that's like the infinite mind. I call it infinite mind you know i mean if you think about that and how cherished we all are even if we're not noticing it larry dossie uses the word noticer you have to be a noticer you know but to think that you know everything behind it there's this potentiality of realizing how profoundly loved and connected we can be 
So I, I was never the same after that. I mean, I, I put my thumb out. I got a ride with a little farmer's truck. I, I remember that so vividly because it was this kind of a green truck. And a guy f- opened his door and, and he said, where are you going? And I said, Portland, Oregon. And he said, well, jump in. I can get you most of the way. My name's Dwayne Dill, D-I-L-L, just like in Dill Pickle. He was very country and Western. He was from Santa Rosa, by the way. And, he, and, and then he said, this here's my wife, Dorothy, who was this red-haired middle-aged gal. And she said, come on in, boy. And I got in there and they got me most of the way. So that was like episode one. And the episode two is the motorcycle thing. But, but the book is, is these episodes of synchronicity and premonition. And I've lived a pretty normal workday life. You know, I, I mean, I've been functional in lots of good medical schools and things, but I, I've told my students about these experiences over the years and kind of challenged them a little bit. And and I've been happy that a lot of times they'll respond, well, I had this experience or, but, and they're kind of inhibited because it's such a, you know, the, the idea is that if you're, if you're a scientist in a, in a big medical school, you've got to be a materialist <laughs> or a physicalist, you know, and the idea that there could be something more than that it, you know, it takes a little courage to even think about it. Your support means the world to us. Hi, it's Dr. Natalie Phillips from Connecting a Better World. Everything we do here at NOCO FM is member supported. From the music we play to our original podcasts and live shows, All of that costs money to produce, and we can't do it without you. Become a member today and invest in the programming you enjoy so we can create more together. Learn more at noco.fm. One of the quotes that you have in the book is, God will provide the perfect driver as needed to help along the rough spots on the journey. Speak to that a little bit, because I I think it does also speak to noticing when that help shows up for us. And oftentimes it does show up either as insight, the push or some synchronicity. Yeah. And it can be really hard if you're struggling with a serious problem, a serious loss, a serious disappointment. And and that's why, you know, uh, to even speak about this cherishing, loving energy in the universe that underlies everything. Uh, Larry calls it the fizz of the universe. To even talk about that when people are, you know, seriously disappointed in life, you know, it, it's it's not easy to do. And you have to be careful about how you bring it in to the conversation and, you know, and how you do it. But um, I really have, life has not always been easy for me. I've had my ups and downs, you know, I mean, uh, but, um, you know, you just have to, you just have to know that down, you know, down the highway, God, you know, this infinite mind has something of a solution planned. You may not be able to anticipate it. You know, I don't believe we make our lives like, you know, we make something like a, a piece of ceramics, you know, but it's more responding to the people who just are brought into our path. Yeah, so so absolutely, and I mean, like for example, you know, in the in the book, there's a fairly poignant moment when I've been in, in Cleveland for 20 years at Case Med, and had done very nicely there, and I was lured away by Stony Brook because they said we want you to start this program on compassionate care and teach our students, 
and I'm 11 years into it and it's all worked out. But I got to tell you, I had cold feet. And so I was, had really cold feet. And I, it was the last night we were there, we were at Glidden House, which is this hotel in the university circle near the Museum of Art. And I'm with my friend, Tom Frudig, who's an old lawyer from Cleveland. And it's like 11, 12 at night and there's, everything's closed down and we're behind the, the hotel at these benches. And I'm kind of commiserating a little bit that I do the wrong thing. And lo and behold, this guy, an African, elderly African-American man, kind of bent over, walks out from an alleyway next to the Barking Spider, which is a bar restaurant. And he just walks across the parking lot toward us, right toward us. And he's got this stick in his hand and it's making a little bit of noise because like got a bead on it. And he just approached me and he said, you know, I woke up and I had a feeling that you would be here and I'm supposed to give you this stick because you don't really know where you're going and the stick is going to know more than you are. And so, by the way, okay, this, this is it. And, and, and so I, I said, wow, that's amazing. But I said, I got to give you some money for it. So he said 40 bucks. I said, I didn't have $40 in my wallet. So Tom, who's still one of my best friends, he pulled out 40 bucks and Tom said, yeah, this stick, he, Tom, Tom was mad at me for leaving Cleveland. He said, this stick knows more than you do. <laughs> but if you look at, and one of my old neighbors from Shaker Heights, Jan Thrope, she actually knows the guy who, who carves these, because apparently there's been an article in The Plain Dealer about him, and she wants to introduce me to him. But these are very ornate. This is a big, long stick. And see, this is a face of somebody. It's kind of like a shamanist yes. stick. And then, and then there's a star here, so the star here, and then this is the bead. So I took my, and this is my, this is my stick, which embarrasses the heck out of my poor wife. So she, she doesn't let me, it, but I keep it here in my office. And, and sometimes, you know, sometimes I'll share that story, you know, with some, with some selectivity, you know, but, uh, but that, but that was totally unexpected. So it was a really it was low point because I love the people in Cleveland. It was my home. And I, somehow I'd been lured by this opportunity, which I, I sincerely felt, you know, I prayed about it, meditated about it, thought it was a good thing. But I was really feeling the sting of separation, you know. And lo and behold, this guy shows up with, with, with this perfect quality staff, if you want. And that helped. So, so, so I could have said, okay, that's just completely a matter of chance and luck. And, and, you know, one theologian said it's an impossible possibility, but it happens, you know? Yeah. It's, it's that infinite mind coming in. Yeah. Yeah. Right. To me, it was completely, it, this, it was proof to me of this kind of infinite one mind that we all participate in. And I mean, we have our individuality too, but, but we're all part of that. And so uh, this guy from the Cleveland ghetto could just come out at the right point at night with this stick and then he wandered away, but it was amazing. So I actually did a bookstore signing in Coventry in Cleveland Heights uh, at Max Beck's books and Jan came and she was so enthusiastic. She'd read the book, you know, and she said, I know that guy. I know that guy. I think that's so awesome. And you know, I, I have to share with you too, that I had one of these moments in my life. I've had several moments like this. And I think if people think back and if they notice the nudging or they notice the, the people that show up with the sticks, you know, they, they can really start keying in on this. Um, but I remember 25 years ago being in Vail, Colorado at my aunt's home 
and literally had 14 of my very favorite friends from college and high school. And all of us were up there having this big ski weekend. And I got ready to go to sleep Saturday night, our last night there. And as I got into bed, um, I was sharing a room with my friend Elle. And I, and I said, I am overwhelmed right now with this sense of sadness. And here we had been having a blast, but I had tears in my eyes. And I said, and at the time I lived in Denver and I was working at a psychiatric hospital and the direct voice I was hearing was saying, you need to move back to Fort Collins. And I told her this, I said, I don't know what this is. It's the strongest urge I have felt. I, I feel like I'm hearing this voice that says you need to, to leave. And I said, I feel like I need to do that. And she's like, why in the world would you do that? You have your very best friends. You know, you work with these wonderful women in Denver. You're the only person that's not mastered level on the therapy staff. Like life is going great for you. And I said, I don't, this is so strong. I can't ignore it. So I'll, it was January 14th. I remember this. And I woke, I, when I woke up, it was January 14th. And I called my mother who lived in Fort Collins. And I said, you know what? I said, I, I have this strong urge. I don't know what the deal is, but my, you know, my lease is up February 1st. And I feel like I need to come back to Fort Collins. And she's like, well, ironically, the guy that rented from their other house, he also was leaving February 1st. So she's like, there's a place for you. You can come. And I said, okay, I'm going to go and give my two weeks notice tomorrow, right on Monday. So I go and I give my two weeks notice. I move back to Fort Collins. But here's the thing. Three weeks to the day after I moved back to Fort Collins, I was a single mother. I had a five-year-old daughter. The adolescent unit where I worked made the front page of the Rocky Mountain News. And it said psychiatric abuses charged because at that time it was before managed care and we had scouts that would go out and get adolescents and bring them in to the hospital and we'd keep wow. them until their, until their uh, insurance ran out. But the, these scouts were getting $5,000 kickbacks, which was illegal. Oh, no. yeah. So the adolescent unit closed. All of my girlfriends were lost their jobs. It was never reopened in that hospital. I would have signed a new lease. I would have been a single mom without a job, not knowing what to do, you know, there in the big city. And so it was wow. extreme, you know, divine guidance. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a spectacular example of what happens in our lives. It, but, but I mean, I do feel that, you know, you, you, you have to be living with the intent of contributing to the lives of others for this to really kick into gear. And I mean, it can kick into gear for everybody, but you know, you were helping folks, you were working in an adolescent psychiatric clinic, which is a lot of work and not easy and, and takes a tremendous amount of dedication. But you know, you were, giving of yourself. You were acting in love, right? And that's why, you know, like in the book, I, ha I have a little picture of um, Norman Rockwell's The Golden Rule. And I did a TED talk on that once. But when I was up in New Hampshire, you know, Rockwell painted that when he lived in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, which is like Western Mass. And he came up to St. Paul's and he gave a talk on The Golden Rule. And he see, you know, all these wonderful people from every age group, from every religion or non-religion and, uh, you know, every gender, every color. There they are. And they're just focusing their minds meditatively on the positive version of the rule, do unto others as you can do, as you would have them do unto you. So they're using their minds, their spirits, they're reflecting love into the universe, and they're very tranquil and very serene. And so Rockwell asked us, do you see the halo? And 
no one could really see it. But then, but then we started to look really carefully. And in the middle of the painting is a white circle. Starts with the rabbi's beard and then the toddler's shirt and goes under and there's the shawl of this wonderful Hindu woman, I think. And, and he said, you know, I'm not religious. And Rockwell wasn't that religious, but he says, I believe in the spirituality of love. And he said, if you make an effort to practice love in your life, if you're trying to help the people around you as best you can, it, he said, it's kind of like surfing. So I, I actually surfed a little bit when I was a kid. You know, you, you, you have to paddle really hard to catch the wave, use a lot of energy. But then once you catch the wave, you're sort of just gone. You know, you're, all you have to do is balance, right? So he kind of felt that the halo was this divine energy of love. And if you, if you made the effort to be loving, even though you would fail and human love, you know, has all kinds of limitations, but at some point you could catch on to this infinite love. And that was, that was when everything would start happening. And so because you were uh, doing so much to help those, those kids and, and, and it was very meaningful work, you know, you were open to, and, and, and you could receive this incredible example of cherishing synchronicity because that's all you can say about it. It's just like you are incredibly cherished. And I want to talk about that just a little bit more while we have a little bit of time left because you know, one of the things that you spoke about too is love being the greatest healer. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and I love your give and glow. Yeah. That, yeah. that is so perfect. Giving and loving and contributing to the lives of others is the prescription for meaning and at least some degree of happiness in our lives. I yeah. love your prescription for happiness because it's exactly what you were just talking about. As we give of love. Right. Then, then we are open to this abundance of it already Absolutely. showing up and flowing through us. Totally true. And, and so I call it the giver's glow or sometimes given glow. And so, so you know, I, I actually had a career. I, I, I was at the University of Pennsylvania in my mid-20s doing immunology stuff. And I quit and I followed the dream again because I sensed that this wasn't quite right for me. So I went where all <laughs> Route 80 Blue Angel Dreamers need to go. I went to the Divinity School of the University of Chicago, <laughs> which is like the hotbed of world spirituality stuff. And I was able to study there with Mersha Eliade, who'd written the book on shamanism, all the tufts of hair coming out of his ears, amazing. And, and at the time, a visiting professor with Joseph Campbell. So I was able to sit in the Swift Kick uh, tea, tea shop with Eliade and Campbell, and I told them about the dream, and I told them about the car breaking on Route 80, and about the bridge, and Harry, and Campbell said, synchronicity, not luck. Eliade said, is it all synchronicity? And we really talked a lot about those ideas there, but it was so beautiful. But then late, later on, you know, I actually had this incredible moment when I, when I met Sir John Templeton and, um, it was, it was about 1988 or so. And we met in it, we were in, a, in the lobby of a hotel 
and he, uh, someone introduced us, uh, and he, he said, well, sit down and tell me about yourself. And, and somehow the conversation got around this idea of divine love. He was, they called him the Tennessee mystic for a good reason, you know. He really believed in this infinite energy. And so I told him the story about the motorcycle and how there's like this field of love between my mom and myself. And she knew that I was in peril. So he had been, he'd been, he, he went to Yale and then he'd been a Rhodes Scholar. And after that period, he actually took a year and he just traveled the world. And he was in Israel before it was the state of Israel. And he was living in a home and there was a lot of acrimony and division and some violence at the time. And this, this home was surrounded and he thought he was finished. And he was, he, they were able to slip out through an alleyway. And his mom in Winchester, Tennessee, Franklin County, Tennessee, that night, she woke up and she was frightened to death because she knew that John had died and she burned all the letters that he had written her. So the whole box full of correspondence, she burned it. And he, of course, you know, he wasn't aware of that because they didn't have cell phones and things, but, but we talked about that. And, and so my whole meet, you know, what happened was, you know, Sir John eventually, and I was, I was sitting in my, in my office at Case Med School and I got a fax from Sir John. He was an older man then. And he said, we need to start an institute to study love, but not just human love, the love that made humans. Love that. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and so I faxed back, Sir John, what should we call it? And, and he said, the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. This, by the way, in answer to a prayer, which is in the book, you know, that I had prayed some years earlier at Harvard um, Memorial Chapel. And I faxed back because I'm around, I'm doing a lot of sciencey things and Alzheimer's and stuff, Alzheimer's genetics. And, and I'm wondering what my colleagues are going to say about this. So I, I faxed back, Sir John, maybe we should call it the Institute for Creative Altruism, because altruism, as you know, is a very sciencey kind of a dry term, you know, it's a little safer. So he faxed back, no, unlimited love up to $8.9 million. And I faxed back, Sir John, I just love that language. It jumps right <laughs> off the page because every, anybody would have done that. But he was <laughs> right because it invited yeah. This conversation with all the spiritual traditions, and that's what we've lacked. And so I've, I, he was so correct. But uh, we started the institute, and and we were able to, you know, fund like fifty or sixty studies at all these great institutions, including Noetics, you know, on sort of you know projecting love to a known partner with cancer and so forth. I mean, I mean, a lot of that stuff was very palatable to me, and Sir John loved it. Not everybody else did. But we studied a lot of the benefits of being a giver. And everybody talks about compassion fatigue, and that's a reality. And we do need balance in our lives and those things. But on the other hand, through Sir John, I got to know people like Cicely Saunders, who founded the hospice movement, started the world's first hospice, Jean Vanier, who founded L'Arche. And these people, like you're saying, Stephanie, you know, they had such a sense of divine flow that they were pretty much indefatigable as far as I could tell because they were on, they were on the wave, you know, they were on Rockwell's wave. They were, they were, they were in the halo. And so all they had to do was balance, you know, <laughs> and, and it, cause it wasn't so much of their energy, but they were participating in a divine energy. And that's, that's the ultimate reality of the universe of all things. So the essence for so much of this as, as we open our own hearts and can be conduits of that love in the world, then we do experience riding that wave and we can mm -hmm. find the balance to continue in that flow. 
Yeah. And, and, and I, you know, I have a meditational practice. I mean, I'm, I'm usually up very early. I'm up about four, four thirty in the morning and um, I'm up early, in, you know, partly because it's just natural to me and I don't really believe sleep science. Sorry about that. <laughs> I mean, it's statistics is all it is. It's, you know, but um, you know, the Kabbalistic Jews, they said early in the morning is the best time to pray and meditate because you're, you sort of get up out of sleep. It's kind of like when I had the dream in St. Paul's and you, you don't really feel that you're within chronological time and you don't really feel like you're, you could be any place. Actually, you could be in Cleveland, you could be in New York or Fort Collins. I mean, you know, and so you're kind of beyond time and place. And then if you meditate in a loving fashion, you can connect with this infinite mind and your, your loving thoughts and loving intentions can become more manifest. And I do, I do believe that. And so, so you can sort of, by having a spiritual practice, you can keep yourself a little closer to that energy. Although on a, if I don't do that, I'm just like any other person, you know, I can fall full chested on my horn because the guy in front of me had the audacity to slow down at a yellow light. <laughs> You know, I mean, on the, especially the Long Island Expressway, which comes into the book, incidentally. So, I mean, it's a very rough place. And, and so you do have to cultivate the inner light. Yeah. And if you do that, and I think visually about the day, I know I'm going to encounter these 10 people or 15 people over the course of the day. And I have these meetings. I kind of anticipate, well, this person uh, lost a spouse, so they're going to need some compassion. This person has a big project, but is not working, so they need a little creative insight. Or this person made a medical mistake yesterday that maybe resulted in a fatality, and they want to quit medicine. So I need to, I need to tell them it's okay to forgive themselves. I did that the other day. I said, you know, those who make no mistakes make nothing. <laughs> You know, and that's true, but it's hard for people to accept that. So I try to think about the folks I'm going to encounter and what manifestation of love they they need. Sometimes it's loyalty. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's a whole lot of different things. So I don't use the word love in everyday practice around a medical school, but I'm always thinking about the people I'm going to encounter and what expressions of love they need. Oh, my definition of love. So. I borrow this a bit from a wonderful psychiatrist who was at the University of Chicago who passed away. I never met him. Um, Harry Stack Sullivan and really cool guy. And he said, when the happiness and security of another is as real or meaningful to you as your own, your own is still there as your own. You love that person. So it's like meaning based, you know, and it's and that works for me because when I, you know, if you look over the crib of a child or a grandchild or you're just having a cup of coffee at Starbucks with an old friend who's having a hard time or, you know, you're you're, you're in the hospice and you're just listening to somebody talk about their life journey. That really works that, that when the happiness and security of another is as real or meaningful to you as your own you love that person. And some people are called to do that for special constituencies. The, you know, for me, it's been the deeply forgetful, but it can be all kinds of groups, you know, you know, it could be adolescent psychiatric patients. I mean, some people are just so called to that, but I do think that, that in synchronicity, you know, this infinite mind of, of unlimited love calls us into these opportunities to express love. And if we follow those opportunities and don't just go to wall street, you know, 
because all Paulies go to Wall Street or they become, <laughs> you know, they become lawyers or whatever. I mean, J.P. Morgan was the most illustrious example of a Paulie graduate. You know, that's kind of the role model, right? But if you follow your dream, and my my favorite quote of all time, Eleanor Roosevelt: "The future belongs to those who believe in the beauty of their dreams." Mm. End of story. You know. Mm-hmm. And I've just been lucky to be able to follow a dream and kind of make my way and not get booted out of these pretty fancy medical schools and be taken seriously, even though people know that there's something about me that's a little unusual. <laughs> but that's what makes it so beautiful, truly. That, that's what makes your journey so beautiful. And I appreciate so much you sharing that bit of wisdom too, that the, that the road isn't always just this clear shot, you know, void of potholes or detours. I love the imagery of life being a, about a drive, you know, in the middle of the night from New York City to LA. And we only have about a hundred feet in front of us illuminated. Right. So as long as we continue on the path, if we take a wrong turn, well, these days we have GPSs, we can get back on the path. And we'll eventually get there. We just have to trust and we follow the light. Yeah. I like the GPS analogy because so whatever you, you, people have all kinds of different belief systems and so forth, but a GPS is a really cool thing because sometimes you will take a wrong turn or you'll turn that or, or somehow it just gets confused and you wind up going the wrong way. Now. But it, it, you've plugged in San Francisco, so you're going to get there. And that, so whatever your, your worldview is, whatever your, your theology might be, your teachings might be, the point is they should all get us to pure unlimited love. We all have this GPS within us and we just have to follow it. There may be some desperate detours, you know? Yes. Yes. Um, and there may be some mistakes and, you know, I wish I'd done that differently, but we have in our hearts this GPS and it will get us where we need to go, even though we don't understand exactly where that is. And, and there's the point that we can come back no matter how lost we may feel and tune in to that inner GPS. Yes. And it exactly. will guide us in the right direction. Yes. Stephen, thank you so much for being here with us and for being with me on the show. It's absolute delight. Well, it's a delight for me to be here with you, Stephanie. I mean, you do such a beautiful job. You're completely wonderful in what you do and what you bring to it. Too, you've clearly been guided and you've, you, you know, you, you've got a lot to say that will free people up so they can be disinhibited. I use that word, you know, just be disinhibited from this kind of dry materialism and recognize that there's a wonderful enchantment and mystery, but we have to be open to it. The importance of this conversation really was so meaningful talking about love as our greatest healer and how important it is that we listen to those inner voices and that intuition that shows up to guide us. Like we talked about at the end of our interview, finding our own inner GPS that will help provide the perfect guidance along our way, wherever our journey takes us. There's such power in synchronicity in our lives as we start caring about other people and really live by that golden rule where we are doing unto others. And I love also just, I think Larry Dossie had a twist, which is do unto others as they would have done unto them. 
where we're really showing up and we are giving to other people, where we're loving and contributing to their lives. And as we do that, then we do find the meaning in our life and we do find an inner happiness. And I think that's part of what Stephen was talking about with the give and glow. I am so thankful to have had this time with Stephen Post. Absolutely such an inspiring story of how we can follow our dreams. And as we continue to do so, the most beautiful paths will open up for us. Not that they're perfect, not that they're without potholes, but that we can continue to get back on the path and allow the divine, allow whatever you consider your guides to guide us on our paths. Remember, The Spark is your show too. If you have questions, feedback on the show, or if you're going through something and need a little help, we'd love to hear from you. Continue the conversation with us at our website, thesparkpod.com, and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. New episodes of The Spark air Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Mountain. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional and should not be considered medical advice. If you're having a mental or physical health crisis, please seek treatment immediately. The Spark is produced by NOCO Media Limited, which is solely responsible for its content. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Spark, igniting your best life. I'm Stephanie James. This has been a production of NOCO FM. 